Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through to 22, found on page 1236. Page 1236, Revelation 3, 14 to 22. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realise that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Andrew, thank you for reading. Let me pray before we begin. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, we ask that we would have ears tonight. Amen. As we start this new year, as a member or a regular attender of a conservative evangelical, Bible-centred church, if you were asked the question, what is the biggest danger the UK church faces in 2023, how would you answer? Now, I imagine there will be plenty of responses. Attack from the outside and being persecuted for what we believe will be high on the list. Christians are certainly in the minority these days. 
And we know the truths that we hold to are unpopular. And when we raise questions and concerns on society's views on topics like marriage, divorce, same-sex relationships, gender issues and the like, and when we hold true to what the Bible teaches on these subjects, we are deemed unloving, intolerant, outdated and irrelevant. And maybe we ourselves are then tempted to shrink back into the background of society. And then, of course, there's the pressure put on the government with the likes of the conversion therapy and how that may affect the church in the future. And perhaps even one day, our freedom to worship will be in danger. And I'm sure there are many other things that we can think of that affects um, the church from the outside. But there's also attack from within. Church leaders compromising what they know to be true to conform and be more relevant with doctrines of false teaching leading many sheep astray. An example being same-sex marriages performed in churches that claim to be under the authority of Christ. And of course, in recent years, the reports of terrible, terrible spiritual abuse as so-called Christians use their high place of authority to get what they want and give in to the simple desires of power, pride, lust and control which not only damages those inside the church, but it will affect church growth as those who are looking on from afar. Well, what what, what are they going to think of Christianity, church, and more importantly, Jesus? Now, these are just some examples of the threat that good Bible-believing churches and Christians face today. And it was the same for the early church in the first century. And as as Jesus has written to these seven churches in Asia Minor, he has called out and spoken into many of these issues. Why? Well, because as, as head of the church and Lord of all, Jesus wants to encourage the churches and his disciples to remain faithful and to keep going. Remember, he is the one who walks among the lampstands. He knows the issues and what Christians face. So he he instructs his churches to persevere through hardship, to repent where necessary, and to set a course correction for those that need it. And these letters are so helpful because what these early churches faced would be the pattern for the future and the normal reality of being a Christian and relevant to the worldwide church throughout the ages, which includes our little gathering here in Banstead tonight. But let's not forget, Jesus reminded us several times in the opening chapter, he's coming back, and he's coming back soon. And we, his church, need to be ready. But as we reach the final church at the beginning of this letter there's a different issue facing the Laodiceans. And unlike the well-known saying, Jesus has left the worst until last. This is by far the harshest letter, full of words of rebuke and warning. And it seems to me that perhaps what Jesus rebukes the Laodiceans for could be the biggest danger that the church today faces. 
apathy and self-reliance. Now, we have two main points this evening. We have a warning and an encouragement. And our first point, and this is where we're going to spend the majority of our time, is be warned, Jesus hates lukewarm faith. Now, no one likes that feeling of nausea. You know what it's like when your stomach starts to feel sick, your mouth waters up, it's horrible. Maybe it's a smell from your past, or like many recently, maybe it's a virus. This is how Jesus feels about this church. Why? Verse 15. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, I'm sure we can all think of plenty of examples of lukewarm not being a good thing. It's nothing worse on a cold day receiving a lukewarm cup of tea. It needs to be hot, doesn't it? And, of course, the opposite is true. On a hot day, you're gasping of thirst and you receive a lukewarm bottle of water, or even worse, a lukewarm pint of beer. No, both must be ice cold. Or you prepare a bath, ready to soak, read a book, and it's lukewarm, useless. This is Jesus' description of this church. And because they are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, he says they are useless. There's no small talk from Jesus. He gets straight to the point. You're lame and you are good for nothing. He would prefer they were one or the other. Which I reckon, well, for me, at first glance, seemed a little bit odd. Does he mean, well, I wish you were either hot, like when you first became Christians, and when you were on fire and full of passion, or I prefer it when you were cold, when you didn't care. Is he saying, I would rather you are properly for me or properly against me, rather than just love me a little bit? That isn't Jesus' point. I'm pretty, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure about that. And to fully understand the imagery, we need to take a trip back to first century Laodicea. Now, the city of Heriopolis, I'm trying to pronounce that all day, seven mile, was seven miles to the north of Laodicea. And it was known for its hot water springs. And the city of Colossae was less than 10 miles to the south of Laodicea. Colossae was known for its cold waters that were pure and drinkable. Laodicea had the unfortunate circumstance of having neither. Now, historians tell us that the Laodiceans built a stone aqueduct to pipe in the hot waters from Heriopolis. But by the time that water made the seven-mile distance, it was not only lukewarm, it was dirty and impure. So even if you wanted to use it or even drink it, no good, because you would become ill and vomit. This is the picture Jesus is using to reveal a hard truth to these Christians. Hot water has value. Cold water is useful. 
lukewarm is neither. And the current state of these Christians is just like their water supply. Useless, no value. So when Jesus says be one or the other, he isn't saying either be saved and on fire or lost forever. That isn't his point. It isn't their zeal that's the issue. No, Jesus is pointing to something else. And we get that in verse 17. You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So, what is the biggest threat to this church? How and why do they find themselves in this state? Well, it's because they're rich. And they don't think that they need Jesus. The Laodiceans have become like the world around them, relying on themselves and their wealth and their material possessions and not Jesus. And again, a quick trip back to Laodicea will again help us to understand why Jesus again uses the perfect imagery to magnify his point. Now, apart from the awful water issue, Laodicea was a very famous city, particularly for its industry, which made it a wealthy city, not dissimilar to London. It was known as a large banking centre. It had a hospital specialising in the treatment of eyes and helping people to see. So people would come from miles to be healed and they would pay top dollar. And it was also a centre of style with top fashion houses specialising in in expensive fleece clothing. So again, Laodicea was not only a wealthy city, but attractive to those who would come and buy the finest clothing on offer. So from the outside looking in, it seems Laodicea wanted for nothing. And that was highlighted in AD 60 when the area suffered a huge earthquake and the city was devastated. But unlike its neighbours, Laodicea declined the imperial assistance and investment from Rome to rebuild the city. And they very quickly restored it by their own means and from their deep pockets. So they've got it made, haven't they? Plenty of money, they're independent, they're popular, they wear the best clothes, and they offer the finest medical treatment as they help people to see. They're healthy, they're wealthy, they're proud of it, they think they're impressive. But Jesus thinks they're pathetic. Verse 17, you say I'm rich and have acquired wealth. Which, of course, in the world's eyes, yes, that's true. But Jesus says this attitude has seeped into their hearts and is affecting their faith and has led them to believe that you don't need a thing. And that includes me. So really, in my eyes, the opposite is true. Spiritually, you are wretched. You're pitiful, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. Spiritually speaking, it would be like going to the cash point to check your large bank balance to find it empty. 
or looking into the mirror to admire your fine garments, see nothing but a naked body. Now, when it comes to illustrating his point, Jesus could not cut deeper, could he? And I wonder how this message would have been received. Do you think they would have been shocked? Do you think they would have been surprised? Maybe they're thinking, hold on, everything we have comes from you, Jesus. Jesus, you've blessed us. And of course, that is true. Everything they, everything we have, including our monies and our possessions, they are a gift from God. But the point is when we rely on these things and value them above all else, or Christians, we find ourselves in immense danger. The Laodiceans have become reliant on self and not the love, grace and mercy of Christ and all he has given to them. Dare I say, maybe they've become apathetic to the gospel and they've forgotten that not only did Jesus carry their sins to the cross as he died to buy their freedom, he calls us, he calls all, all Christians, to carry our own cross, to put him and others first. But of course, the world says the opposite. It's all about me, what I have, what I've achieved. I can look after myself. And when that attitude slips into the church, as we will see later, they're only a church on the outside because they've locked Jesus out. This attitude makes Jesus sick. He has done everything for them and for us. He died and he rose again. They have all they need in him. All they need. All we need. And he instructs them in verse 18 to go to him. He reminds them of what he offers. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Only Jesus offers true riches that bring security and happiness. Only he can clothe in the white garments of righteousness and make us spotless and clean from the shame of sin and ready for the wedding banquet in the new creation. Only Jesus opens the eyes of the rebellious so we can see the truth of the gospel of grace. But the Laodiceans have fallen for the trap, relying on themselves and the illusion that material possessions matter, and that financial security offers real security. Well, that's a lie. And can lead to the danger of being lukewarm and becoming a part-time Christian. Now, these are cutting words from Jesus to this church, but words they needed to hear. They're the opposite of the church in Smyrna, who were poor in wealth, but rich in eternity. And this church and all churches must listen. 
let us not forget who is speaking to them. It's not the pastor. It's not the elders. Who's speaking to us tonight? It's not me. No. Like in all the other letters, Jesus has reminded them of his authority in the opening verse. He is the Amen. He is the truth and only speaks truth. He is the faithful and true witness. His motives are good, and he says, and what he says, he says these things, sorry, because he is a faithful friend. He's the ruler of God's creation. Jesus is the source of everything. The opening verses in John's gospel, all things were made through him. He's the ultimate authority. And in all things, Jesus' verdict will stand. There's no negotiation, there's no compromise. This church needed to hear these words. And the very clear application is, they had better listen. And 2,000 years later, the same is true for all churches, and that includes us. Now, I don't know how you have felt listening to Jesus' rebuke. But the question has to be, are you, am I, is Christchurch in danger of being lukewarm? Are you, or have we become reliant on ourselves and our material wealth and possessions and become apathetic to the gospel and all that Jesus has done for us? Are we at risk of being spiritually poor and facing the danger that many churches today face and locking Jesus out? Does our faith truly affect the way we live? Do we sing the songs from the, uh, from the mouth, but not from the heart? Are we full of action for God, but with no private engagement with Christ? Is life for some so good that we have forgotten that we need Jesus and not the other way around? Do we make Jesus nauseous? Does he want to spit us out? Sorry. Excuse me. <clears throat> I have thought long and prayed hard about this for myself and for us. And clearly, we are not immune to these dangers. But over the years, oh, I really want to say this, I have witnessed many, many in this church literally pouring themselves out for Christ and the ministry work in his church in Vanstead. The commitment in weekly groups and gatherings and gospel events, the unseen, tireless hours behind the scenes, the one-to-one -one ministries, the pastoral care, and countless other examples. And Jesus says to you, I know your deeds. Keep going. But perhaps, as you've listened to Jesus' words tonight, maybe you're cringing in your seat. And you fear Jesus' assessment is where you're at. Well, keep listening. Jesus has words for you in a moment. But to those who aren't really sure, well, maybe we need to take a temperature test to find out. 
and to ask ourselves some questions. So, in terms of our church life, do we attend church on Sunday because we feel we should, and it's just what we've always done, or because we want to worship? Are we clock-watching during the service and thinking about lunch? Or are we intently listening to what God is saying to our hearts and looking forward to fellowship after the service? Do we come to the monthly prayer meeting or a small local group out of habit and fear of what others may think if we don't show? Or do we attend because we understand the importance of time together in corporate prayer and that it's good for us? And that small local groups are a lifeline for some that attend. And that encouraging each other in God's word is paramount in the Christian life. And I must and want to be a part of that. Now I recognise there is a fine line between legalism and box ticking. And of course there will be times when we find church life difficult for one reason or another. Only last week a mature believer shared with me that he rarely looks forward to a prayer meeting, but always leaves each meeting at the end, knowing that it was good for him and good for others to have shared that time in prayer together. And I wonder how many of us would echo those feelings. I think we also need to test how warm we are by going outside of the Christian bubble. Do we really care about evangelism and sharing Jesus in the gospel with our friends, our neighbours, colleagues? And are we on the lookout for opportunities to share the difference that Jesus is making in our life? Or do we shy away out of fear of rejection? Do we really care enough about the salvation of others? Now look, we're all guilty of that one at times. But I think the heart of that question really is, are we happy to wear our Jesus colours outside of the safety of our church? Some other searching questions. Are we preoccupied with our earthly, daily life, our to-do lists, our careers, our finances? Or do we regularly consider what the Lord might want to do with our lives and meditate on the life to come in eternity and the riches of heaven. Where are we really looking for our security? Are we relying on the material rather than the spiritual? Do we wait on the Lord when unsure of decisions? Or do we rush into what we want, no matter the consequence? Do we walk by faith or by sight? Do we trust and run to him in the hard times? Or do we try and fix it ourselves? To sum up, is Jesus the centre of our life? Or is, or is he just a part of our life? Are we only willing to give him part of our time, part of our money, part of our thoughts, rather than thirst and crave to be in the presence of the king at all times? Now, some of these tests are hard, and they will, be, they will be revealing. I've not enjoyed it myself. 
And at times, look, we're going to be guilty of these things. We know that. I know I am. But it's good for us to think these things through together. And I want to just remind us, our sanctification, which is our journey to holiness, our journey to be more like Christ, it is progressive. It's like running up a hill. You might start well and get tired, slow down. But we've got to keep striving to the summit. And when we fix our eyes on Jesus and the truth of what he has done for us, we will keep climbing that hill. But remember, we won't always grow in our Christian life at the same rate that we did two, three, five, twenty, thirty years ago. Sometimes there are barren spells. There are winters. So it is important that when we survey our life and ask ourselves these quick questions, look at it at a period of months and years and not, and not weeks. And if you're still unsure, I think a good way to, to check, ask the honest opinion of another Christian who knows you and that you trust. Because more often than not, well, we'll always give ourselves a bad mark. We always think we're hopeless. When actually the truth is, we're probably doing okay. I think these questions, we need to zoom out a little bit. Because Jesus is talking to the church. So we need to ask ourselves, don't we, as a body. We must be careful of spiritual pride and must always keep Jesus at the centre of our gatherings and all we do. Yes, he has blessed us in so many ways. Banstead is a great place. We are fantastic servant-hearted people. We have been blessed financially with many who sacrificially give. And we are bold to, to our community. We're not ashamed of the gospel. The Christmas events really showed that. But the day that we think that we've cracked it and forget that the greatest blessing we have is that Jesus is amongst us by his spirit, well, that will be the day that we value Jesus and his church like the world does. And it's the day we become a club and we cease to be a church. Hard-hitting stuff. And as we said earlier, Jesus doesn't mince his words or hold back in this rebuke to the Laodiceans or Christians like them. But let us not forget, he says these words from a place of love. Yes, he hates lukewarm faith, but our second and much shorter point, be encouraged, Jesus opens the door to the repentant. Let me read from verse 19, sorry. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Every good leader knows that words of encouragement are always needed alongside 
words of rebuke. And Jesus starts verse 19 with the wonderful words, those whom I love. He's reminding the church that, yes, he isn't happy with them. But his harsh words, they do come from his heart, a place of love. Any parent out there knows that discipline is a sign of love. When our children misbehave, we rebuke them and we give them a consequence so they'll learn. Because we love them. We want what's best for them. If we allow behaviour which is wrong to go unnoticed and not dealt with, it will lead to big, big problems in the future. This is where Jesus is coming from. This church have locked him out. The creator of the world has been locked out of his own church. But he stands outside, patiently knocking. He isn't begging them. He isn't like Oliver Twist, holding out his bowl. Please, sir, can I have some more? No. Jesus knocks on the doors of the hearts, quietly speaking to them and instructing them to repent, to turn around, reminding them of who he is and what he, opens, what he offers to those who open the door. Relationship and fellowship with the king. Now, I know verse 20 is a very special verse to many here and many Christians around the world who first responded to the good news through this verse. And it certainly isn't wrong to use this verse evangelistically. And if you're here tonight and not yet trusting Jesus, he is knocking on your heart. He does want fellowship with you. He does want you to know that he gave up his majesty and took the punishment for your sin so that you can have a wonderful future with him in eternity. So don't delay. Respond to him today. But this verse, in its true context, Jesus is speaking here to Christians who have already responded and repented of their sin but have lost their way. Mark's Gospel, first, the first chapter tells us in verse 15 that Jesus came into the world to call sinners to repentance. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And millions over the centuries have wonderfully responded. But the Apostle John reminds us in his first letter that the mark of a true Christian is that we continue to confess sin and repent when we stray. And this is what Jesus is calling the Laodiceans to do. And at the, end of the, at the end of the letter, he reminds them of the wonderful motivation in verse 21. A place with him in eternity on his throne with our Father. So tonight, Christian... If you have been challenged, if you know in your heart of hearts that you have or you continue to stray on that road of righteousness with Christ and that you have fallen into the trap of the world, listen to the words of your Saviour. Repent and ask him to guide you back.
His promises are true, and he will open his arms to you. And church, let's pray that we will always have ears and listen to what the Spirit says to his churches. And make sure that we avoid the danger of self-reliance, that we never get apathetic to the gospel, and that we continue to love, worship, trust, and rely on Jesus and Jesus alone in the good times and the bad. And let's pray that we will always stay true to that sign above our door, that Christ Church Banstead is and always will be all about Jesus. Let's take a moment to reflect on what the Lord's been saying to each of us, and then Andrew will come up and continue.